Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Oh my gosh, I am so excited to welcome today's guest. Let's dive right in. Hi, Sasha. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for having me. I cannot wait to talk to you and for my audience to meet you and to learn about this new amazing resource, not new resource, but new, possibly new to them. So why don't we start off by just having you introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about your business. Tell us why you care. Give us the intro. Sounds good. I'll try to keep it somewhat short. We'll see. I'm going to say that and then I'll talk for 10 minutes, but I started out as a special ed teacher. I originally wanted to be a social worker, but I was scared off at the concept of a master's degree, but I ended up getting a master's degree anyways. But you know, at 18, those decisions feel big. So I got my undergrad in special ed, became a special ed teacher. I was really lucky as a young teacher to be in a classroom that had other self-contained special ed teachers in that building or in a building that had other self-contained teachers in that building. I was also really fortunate to have a principal that actually gave me a lot of leeway, which sounds maybe interesting for like a young teacher, don't you want more guidance? But I think what was great about my first few years teaching, especially was he knew he didn't know what to tell me to do. So I had a lot of freedom to try new things. I had a lot of freedom to find new curriculum, to let's, let's try community-based instruction and really figure out what was working and what wasn't. So I was a self-contained teacher for 10 years. During those 10 years, I became a BCBA, which was fun and horrible at the same time. I went to school at night and then came back to school the next day. But the great part was, it was seeing everything in action. And especially when I became a BCBA and the field is, is shifting slowly, slowly, but it's still a field that's really focused. I think, especially when you're learning on in-home and clinic settings where you have so much control of the environment and schools, you have no control of the environment, like logistics right. rule the world in schools. So it was fun to see these strategies I was learning in action in a public school where I was overcrowded and understaffed and had kids that didn't have the right placement still in my room. And I did my supervision in my school as well. So that was a great experience to really start out my career in ABA in a public school. Um, so I became a BCBA while I was in the classroom. And I also started a blog, which I was like, I don't know what a blog is. Should I start a blog? How do I do that? This was pre-Pinterest, pre-Instagram, like blogs weren't a thing. But yeah, I wanted, what, what year was it? What? It's 10 years ago this year, 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, oh man, I loved me a blog back in 2000. I know, right? Well, oh, like yeah. old school blogs. They were, they were like diary entries. Yes. And I really started it, my blog at first because I remember being hungry for ideas. You know, as in undergrad, in your undergraduate degree for special education, the degree is so broad. You can teach preschool through high school, resource through self-contained, you know, a little bit of a lot. So I felt wildly unprepared and I was hungry for ideas. Like I had five resources, I think like texts that I thought were good and that was it. And I just was looking always like asking administrators in my district, can I go see their classroom in the other part of the town? Can I go there? Cause I just, I wanted to know more. 
So I really wanted to share ideas and I wanted to take photos and videos. And the first YouTube video I ever made, I made my then boyfriend, now husband, come to my classroom and film on a digital camera, a tour of my class. And it was unintentionally 45 minutes. But so I really started it to share, to share ideas. And from there, we really grew very organically. I started a store on Teachers Pay Teachers to create resources and curriculum. I started getting asked to do more consulting and speaking, and that grew very naturally. And then I started a podcast and things like that. And soon obviously had to leave the classroom because I was doing two full-time jobs. But so now where we are is we, I can't really try to stick to that original kind of goal is sharing resources and strategies and the special ed teacher in me will forever differentiate how we do that. So we share resources and strategies in a lot of ways. We still have a blog. We now have a team of 12 amazing bloggers in different settings, clinicians, teachers, parents. We have a podcast where I got, you know, the great honor of interviewing experts in the field. I got to interview Temple Grandin this fall. It was wild. So Um, crazy. So nervous for that one. It was so good. (laughs) She's amazing. She's lovely. But I was terrified. (laughs) Yes, I would be too. But that is so exciting. Yes, for sure. She is indeed amazing. Yeah, she is. And we share, I still do speaking mostly virtual. And then we have two, almost three online courses. So we've really tried to create training content that's really accessible for teachers and parents. Like we know that like no one has like seven hours they want to spend on Zoom, right? So how can we create bite-sized training? So all of our courses are self-paced, five to 10 minute modules, short and sweet. And we kind of turn that into a professional development membership as well. So we have um, over a thousand parents and teachers in that and they get monthly training and consultation and resources and all that good stuff. So we're still providing resources and strategies, but now in a lot of different ways. That is amazing. So um, before, this is probably like bad marketing strategy, but who cares? Because this is, we are free. We are entrepreneurs to do things as we wish. Um, So people are probably like, ooh, an online course? What's it about? I want to know. So tell us about the two, almost three online courses, because you know how people get excited about it. I would love to. So our first one is on behavior change. And I, and I know we're going to talk about behavior today. I'm really passionate about teaching about behavior in a way that's understandable, relatable, and also something you can actually do in the real world. So our first course is called Positive Behavior Change. It's, I believe, a six CEU class. So it's about six hours. But as I said, it's all like five to 10 minute quick videos. Along with that course, there's a really cool toolkit and the course has a ton of downloads. I really want to teach the strategies, but then give you the stuff to do it. Our second course, we actually just reopened today. We launched it a year ago and had hundreds of teachers go through it. And that is called the Roadmap to Reading. In addition to behavior, I love talking about literacy. That was something when I was teaching, I really struggled with because I was like, you know, 22 years old. I'm like, well, where's the stuff like to teach Johnny to read? Like I have Johnny. Like right. who brings me who brings me the things for Johnny? And they were like, oh, sweetheart, you you make the things. <laughs> And realizing that the gen ed curriculum wasn't going to be a good fit. So the roadmap to reading was really a labor of love. It takes you from assessment through instruction and all the differentiation pieces along the way. What do we do for our kids who are not yet speaking? How do we assess them? They don't just get left out of literacy instruction because our assessment doesn't work for them. So that um, the roadmap to reading is our second course. And I'm currently filming our third course on executive functions, which will release this summer. 
Yay. Oh my gosh. The three things that I am like, so <laughs> I love about. talking about all these <laughs> behavior, reading and executive function. And those are the three things, honestly, in my practice recently, particularly kind of like in this, I don't want to call it post COVID world, but this maybe post remote learning world that we're all exploring that keep coming up. So yep, for sure, wonderful, wonderful work. Um, and I can't wait to talk to you offline about more of those um, things. So that is awesome that you are doing such good work and I can't wait to dive in um, so that my listeners learn um, a little bit. So we're gonna talk a little bit about advocacy and a little bit about some autism specific um, topics that probably will apply to my broader audience as well. Um, so I know, you know, by way of advocacy, that a lot of the work that you do does support school staff. So you provide resources that are available to teachers and parents, obviously also tag along in these trainings and, and benefit greatly from the trainings. Um, but do you have any tips for my audience, which is mostly parents, on how parents can support the school staff as the school staff supports their autistic students? How, you know, I, I preach teamwork and communication and really kind of being a part of the team and the ideological conflict of getting in and getting the dirty stuff done. How can parents really kind of dive into that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, I think it's important to think about from a parent perspective, because ideally that team approach is going to start from the schools, but we all know that doesn't always happen, right? So yes, we have those years where you have like the sunshine goddess teacher who like right away swoops in and everything's great and we collaborate and it's perfect. And then you go from that to like, what's my teacher's name again? I didn't even get an email from them. So what do you do, especially with those like maybe reluctant educator situations? And I think, you know, that unfortunately then weight of initiating and growing that collaboration is on the parent, which is unfortunate, which is same. I preach teamwork and collaboration all the time, but I think being really consistent. And I think also in general, this is like my philosophy. If you are polite and respectful, you can be a little bit bossy and a little bit annoying. Like Agreed. Just, just stay at it, you know, like schedule a reminder in your phone. Every Monday you text, like, what's my kid up to today? You know, like, so just stay at it. And like those, you know, as long as you're polite and respectful, I also think at the same time, and I know we're going to touch on remote learning and COVID things, acknowledging that the last two years have like brutalized our teachers. So I yeah. think, you know, in the same way of being like having high expectations for what that team looks like, I think also giving, especially this year, teachers a lot of grace that, you know, and, and saying that. I know this year is horrible. Like, I know we're not going to get to these new high, hard goals this year because this is not the year to do that. And I think that can take such a weight off because if we think about things like behavior analytically, like I, I think teachers engaged in a lot of avoidant behaviors. Like, I'm not going to reach out to this parent because I don't want them to tell them that like things aren't going well right now because the class is a hot mess. So they just avoid, avoid, avoid. And then parents are like, I've heard nothing. So I think, you know, acknowledging to teachers like this and this year is is so much worse than last year too like oh, and that's is. just consistently what we're hearing so I think you know giving giving grace for this year but once we're back to business as usual staying consistent on wanting communication beyond an annual IEP and a progress report meeting like we need way more than that my regular listeners are going to be like, okay, she paid her to say that. <laughs> <laughs> because I even um, 
teach a, a strategy called the Sunday email where you send an email <laughs> on Sundays and you, and you set a calendar update yeah. that says like nine o'clock. And, and yeah. what I say when I teach this is not only does it have the really important purpose of keeping home community and school all tied in so that we can all look at generalization of skills and behaviors across different um, environments, but it also has the undercurrent that the advocacy undercurrent of, oh, Ashley Barlow is going to be sending me that email, yeah. which then, <laughs> yes, it raises the expectation. And they know that you're the kind of parent that is going to expect that kind of communication back and is going to notice if they don't do something. So it really kind of heightens the standards for the, for the entire team. And when it all boils down, we're a team, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. I didn't love pay that. Me to say that. Didn't pay me to say that. <laughs> I loved that answer. Yes. I did not pay you to say that. Um, and, and, you know, I had never really thought about the avoidant behavior, but you're right. Like from an analytical standpoint, that is what teachers are doing. And so if I, I have a podcast episode on empathy and our advocacy, and I do talk about that in the team, like nobody is perfect and teacher burnout is so so real i have somebody else lined up to talk about teacher burnout because it's so important and it is absolutely devastating and if we don't acknowledge it teachers feel misunderstood yeah. and this is a huge part of their psyche right now right oh, yeah yeah huge and i mean I, I just imagine you know like if the tables were turned and you feel like you're failing at something you love doing and someone says to you like it's okay like it's okay right now. And like, that could just be such a shift in even like a challenging relationship between a parent and an educator that like feeling seen and heard on that, like this. Cause I think that's a big thing with teachers right now is it's, there's so little like respect for the field and feeling undervalued right now. And in a field that we're already undervalued, it's even more. So just that, even that statement of like, I know that this year is hard. Like I'm going to send you a $5 Starbucks card for no reason. Cause this year stinks. And I see the hard work you're doing. Yeah. You know, go a long way. Yeah. I just sent in um, popcorn from a self-advocate that owns a Aww. popcorn company yeah. for that very reason. Um, so <laughs> you're talking to these school people a lot because of what you offer and what autism helper offers. Um, and then having been in the classroom for years, what kinds of things do schools want to hear from parents? Because that's kind of, I teach the concept of the Sunday email. I have a list of things to include, but people are always like, okay, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I really struggle with what I should actually communicate. Yeah, I, that's a great question too. I think, you know, two main things pop in my head with this. One is what are your struggles at home? Because I feel like that is sometimes a disconnect of like, we're picking all these goals at school that we hope are functional, especially for our older students. But like, yeah, maybe we're teaching this like time management skill, but is time management even an issue at home? Or, you know, we're teaching something that we haven't even talked to parents or caregivers if that's the struggle. Maybe they're like, man, all I worry about right now is my kid getting to sleep. That is consuming my life is getting my kid to sleep. Well, if I knew that as a teacher, like, okay, well, maybe I can help you find resources or there's other things we can do besides like focusing on something different. Sleep one's a little trickier because you don't sleep in school, but you get my point. And the other thing that I think that would be helpful for teachers to be knowing is what works at home? Like, what are the things that are successful? Like, 
hey, we had a really great weekend and we went to our uncle's house, which we've never gone to. And I thought that was going to be hard for Johnny. Um, but actually we talked about it for two weeks. And by the time we got there, he was so excited. He didn't even ask for his iPad while he was there. So, you know, just want to let you know that that worked like little things like that of like, oh, by the way, I don't know if you realize, but Johnny's now obsessed with Bluey. So maybe bring some Bluey stuff in your class. Like, and especially for our kids with limited language on, you know, what are new um, preferences? What are new potential reinforcers? What are quick wins and strategies that are working at home? Like the smallest thing could be helpful and could be a game changer in a classroom. Agree entirely. I just had to send a message this morning for my little guy that has Down syndrome that said, um, Mentos, the word is Mentos because he's been watching YouTube videos about Mentos and well, Mentos and Coke, but he says Mentos in a root beer float. <laughs> and so, but I knew he was going to go in and talk about it. Yeah. And for whatever reason, Mentos, it's, it seems like it'd be easy to say, but it does not sound like Mentos. And so yeah. I just communicated that. Well, that's Yeah. Like I liked also loved knowing like what families were doing over the weekends. Like we had a big thing in my classroom and I've taught this a lot, the like Friday and Monday conversations, like especially like related to the social thinking curriculum of like our friend files and like, let's all talk about what we're gonna do. And then let's ask pointed questions. Like, hey, you said you were going to a baby shower. How was the baby shower? Um, and obviously that strategy lends itself really well with kids that have a certain amount of verbal skills, but what about our kids that don't? Like, right. you know, if you're going to Outback Steakhouse this weekend, I wanna know about it. Cause I wanna ask on Monday. And I used to love when parents would like text photos of what they did. And then I, you know, I'm pulling up like, Hey, Johnny, look, mom sent me this. And they're like, Oh my God, you know, mom, like, so like, it really just helps increase that connection for the kids too. Those are in the Sunday email, the pictures. Yeah. Yeah. The pictures. <laughs> love it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I sent my first picture when we got a dog and I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to go to school on Monday and he's not going to be able to say like all the other kindergartners, I got a dog. Yeah. And so I found myself like Googling how to draw a dog, you know, so I could draw a little dog for him and I wrote dog underneath it. And then I wrote things so that he could share dog, yeah. which was, he was in kindergarten. That's how much he could say. And then I wrote a little thing. The dog's name is Higgs. He is black and white. He is a schnoodle. He, oh. We have since lovingly placed the dog with our cleaning lady. I'll hand <laughs> And no, we have a new yeah. dog, Coco, who is the light of our lives and much <laughs> less anxious and the world is great. Um, but we had to communicate those things because he couldn't do that himself. And that was very important. And then that kind of led into the spiral of what would I have wanted when I was in the classroom, which is what you just articulated. So I think that's super helpful. Um, and I and I encourage my families, even when they have middle schoolers and high schoolers to do the same, mm -hmm. because the struggles are much harder to figure oh, out. You know, it is sure. much harder to figure out if we're having a good day or a bad day and what might have precipitated that and what your gut feeling is with that. That's hard with neurotypical teenagers. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, Let's dive into some of those kind of autism specific things. And you kind of alluded to the first question, which is struggles that are secondary to COVID and COVID learning. So, you know, COVID has brought so many challenges and so many changes. So changes in learning environments, social exposure, community exposure, employment experiences, um, people in and out of our lives for illness and quarantine and all of those kinds of things. 
And we have this whole community of people that thrives in consistency and routine. So what kind of advice can you give us for children that do thrive in that routine and continue to have this existential crisis going on around them? You know, I feel like I'm having an existential crisis. <laughs> Me too. Um, I'm asking for myself. Yeah, I know, right? Um, I, that's, I point that out to people so often. You know, I was like, think about how hard the last two years have been for you. And like multiply that times maybe 1 million. Like, I mean, it, it, that this has been a hard two years. I'm someone that thrives on schedule and routine. And that was all like taken away with no warning. So thinking about our kids that needed that even more, and then the warning was even less and the communication maybe was even less because we didn't know what to communicate. We didn't even know what was going on. We thought they'll be close two weeks and we'll be back. Right. And then we're like laughing sadly at ourselves two years later. But I think, you know, as much consistency and routine as we can provide, of course, during this time is great. But I think for me, I keep telling teachers, like your goal is to keep your students happy and safe. That's it. You do that. You leave the door at 255 and you're like, my kids were happy and safe today. You pat yourself on the back and you get in your car and you drive home and you don't think a second about it. And maybe that's an unpopular opinion. Like, what about the data? What about the goals? What about this? Like we're teaching in a pandemic. Like if our kids are happy and safe, learning is still happening. Like they're learning in so many other areas. And I think it's hard, especially for like my type A teachers that I commiserate with that they're like, well, three years ago, we were doing this and this and this and Johnny's this. And it's, it's okay. You're going to get back there. And everyone has lost these years. Like it wasn't just taken from students with special needs. I mean, we look at how our students are struggling in general, you know, kindergartners that came to school this year that had literally never been in a school building like third graders that hadn't been in school since kindergarten third grade teachers were like I don't know how to teach waiting in line well you better learn because these kids are not a waiting line so I think as much as like and maybe that's hard for a parent to hear that's like well I lost these two years of education our kids are learning other skills right now they're learning flexibility they're learning persistence they're learning how to be on a screen and learn on a screen and to communicate in different ways and go through different challenges like wearing a mask and things like that. And we'll get that back. You know, we'll get that learning back. We'll get back to our data and our rigor and all that good stuff will be there. But I think we have to like get everyone back to baseline, which is like our students and our teachers. Yeah. So it's really kind of the, the mindset shift of switching the priorities, looking for the good, and realizing, and I couldn't agree with you more, that we aren't going to learn when we're in trauma. So it, we've, we've got to kind of recover from the trauma in order to be able to move forward. Because if we don't recover from the trauma, we're never going to learn anything. Yeah, absolutely. And then everyone's going to feel unsuccessful, you know, like, and that's who's going to, no one's going to enjoy that anyways. Like what's going to, good going to come out of that? Yeah, I agree with you entirely. We had a huge like win at our house yesterday that I hadn't planned on talking about, but um, I got home from work and Jack was out and our, our garage is kind of set up as a sensory gym. And he was, he was out there and I said, come on, you got to come in and eat. And, you know, usually when I come home, dinner was in the crock pot. So usually when I come home, there's at least a half an hour warning for him, but dinner was ready. My husband had shredded the chicken, everything's going. And I said, come on in, you got to eat. Cause then we got to do X, Y, and Z. And he did not want to transition at all. Um, and his body did not want to transition even more. <laughs> and we're working on interoception because 
this, all of these changes have made him really, really anxious. And I realized that he doesn't have a whole lot of um, knowledge or feedback from his body on how he feels. And so I was able to really articulate for him. I could, it was just so obvious. He was feeling really busy in his body with the transition and he was feeling mad, but he also was feeling disappointed because he wanted to continue to watch a YouTube. And so I said, honey, you can finish that YouTube. Look, you can even carry your iPad with you while you're watching the YouTube. But I was able to get him to utilize a, a skill. So I was able, once I identified and he really, and this kind of goes back to labeling for the teachers, right? Like I know that you are frustrated. And by labeling, I was able to get him to the swing and he swang, I don't know, just like a minute. And then I said, doesn't your body feel more calm? And we use zones of regulation. So look, now I think you actually are in the green, Jack. And he felt so good. And we went in and we had dinner and it was like, hallelujah, it's working. Yeah. And like celebrating those wins. Like even if you're like, well, three years ago, that would have been easy. Well, who cares? It's not three years ago, you know, like celebrating those wins because they're huge. Yeah. Yeah. We were stuck in the three years ago thing. And I had to deliberately tell myself, okay, listen, it's not three years ago. So just move on. Yeah, it is. It is what it is. And even if you continue to say this is hard and this is awful, you're going to be stuck in hard and awful. So like it is now yeah. move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Okay. Well, thank you for indulging me in that little. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So behavior, we're kind of jumping all over, but there's like so it. much good stuff. Um, my clients and my students in my courses ask often um, about how to get your behavior plan from home implemented at school. And I loved the way you already set the foundation for your answer to this <laughs> earlier. So sometimes they want their private BCBA to come to school and they want them to be added to the plan. Um, so I live with a child that needs behavior supports and I share some of these experiences, but I also have, you know, kind of my own experiences on how things have worked and haven't worked. And I, I know that it's super hard to be consistent across all environments and also maybe not important to be consistent across all environments. So how do we support these families? What advice can you give families that kind of are looking for that kind of consistency and generalization of skills? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot to unpack in there. So kind of the first thing, thinking about the inconsistency, I think that's a good point you make. Does it have to be consistent? Like my child is a completely different child at school than she is at home. At, At school, she is like angel goddess, has never been rude or disrespectful to her teacher ever. And then yesterday she spent like most of dinner saying SHIT because everyone else, her siblings were laughing. You know what I mean? Like she would never do that at school. So I think that's important to realize because I think, you know, we get stuck in like, we need to do this and this and this, but like, what's age appropriate? Kids have different behaviors at school than at home all the time. So I, but I think the point is like, let's identify is the behavior plan working at school in general? So if the behavior plan is not working at school, meaning you're like getting all these calls, you know, things are not going well, then what do you do? And especially when you have that in-home support, that gets, that gets murky quick. Cause I've been on both sides of it. I've been the BCBA on the school side. I've been the BCBA with the parent and no one likes anyone in this situation. Like, let's be real. Like everyone, this like intensifies everything. Like if there's a BCBA involved from the family, like everyone's immediately like, Oh my God, 
Like I've, I've showed up at meetings where I literally haven't talked. I'm just there to like be scary. And I'm five feet tall. And I'm like, I'm not scary. Like, but it's like, you know, you're bringing an in-home BCBA, like, whoa. So, but I, and I talk quite a bit to BCBAs, to those in my field, because I think I have, you know, the, I've had the opportunity to be on both sides, to be the teacher too, is how that can feel when, a BCBA comes into a teacher's classroom and is suddenly like, let me tell you the 50 things you're doing that are wrong. And the skill of consulting is so hard. And the skill of consulting is so hard when the person you're consulting with hasn't asked for you to be there. And that's often what happens when a home-based BCBA is going into a classroom because the teacher didn't ask for that help usually. And I think that responsibility in a huge way is on that BCBA to pair to build rapport, to spend time literally communicating to that teacher. Like we're all together on the same team. And I think as a parent, you need to make sure your BCBA is going to do that because if they're not, I would not send them into that school because you're just going to make people not like you. So I think if you have like a really great BCBA that you think can do that and you tell them like, I need you to win over this teacher. This new teacher needs to think you are like God's gift to ABA and love you. And if you can't do that, then you're not going near there because they have to like work together. They have to play in the same sandbox. And so I think, you know, from the parent's perspective, being really, really clear on that because that can cause a lot of conflict really, really quickly and animosity. And you don't want your kid's teacher to have any animosity towards your kid. So I think like long answer, you know, look at if that behavior plan is, is working or not. If it's not working, and you want to bring your in-home BCBA and I think that's great. I, that's ideal if everyone's working together, but make sure that it's going to be a cohesive situation. And if you're in that unfortunate situation of, you know, everything's gone wrong and they're just like actively not listening to a behavior plan or not following through on what they said they were going to do, then kind of what we said before, then like maybe you go from polite and respectful to like maybe not so polite or respectful anymore because now, you know, when we're actively going against a legal document, what is written on the IEP, especially when it comes to like staffing or safety and things like that, you know, like the the staff's not there, the protocol's not being followed. And now there's like a risk of like your child getting hurt. Oh yeah, then you're, then it's no longer time to be so respectful and polite anymore and really stay on those school districts because guess what? The money's there. The budget's there for whatever supports they said. They just have to find it. Unpopular yeah. opinion probably. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you entirely. And it still doesn't have to be adversarial. You can still marry your objective advocacy with data that you've taken at home and for heaven's sakes in this scenario you've got a bcba so you've got data that a professional's taken at yeah. home with this subjective kind of mama bear gut feelings and you can still marry those into really effective advocacy that creates conflict of course because you're trying to push your entire team to better results yeah but it still doesn't have to be adversarial and personal yeah um and i love what you said about kind of the sociology of bringing somebody else in. And you are exactly right. They come in and they sit at the table and it doesn't matter, honestly, if it's a BCBA or it's your private OT yeah. or it's an attorney or an advocate. Anyone, yeah. You're you like someone else. They're like, who is this? <laughs> yes, yes. And it can have a great effect. I, mm -hmm. I oh, yeah. um, wear different outfits. You know, I don't wear a black pantsuit to any meetings. And if I do, you know, I'm there. <laughs> or like black pants, <laughs> pearls, 
<laughs> boring heels. Like I look like a banker. <laughs> I'm there for, I'm there for not a not good reason. Yeah. But if absolutely. I've got on ruffles and pink, yeah, then I'm there for just a normal reason. I'm just here to support the family. And I might have a couple of things to, to add that might yeah. help. Um, so yeah, I mean, the sociology of the inner workings of the team is as important as the content of what you're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just not, I've just seen it go poorly, unfortunately, so many times. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad mostly as a behavior analyst. I'm going to be really honest there because it's like disappointing in my field. Like I have, I have behavior analysts that I went to grad school with that I know personally that I know have been rude in consultations and in observations. And I'm like, we have the same training. Like, how dare you? Like the, the, the school, the, the classroom, especially that's your, their teacher's house. Like, it's like walking into someone's house and being like, your decor is ugly. Like it's equivalent to that. Like teachers spend their own money to buy things and buy resources for their students. And they're trying. And, you know, when you come and just dump on them, it just starts off the relationship from a place of defense. And that's never going to be really productive and fulfilling strategies and for that student. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I one time went in myself as a parent, former teacher, which maybe was the intimidating part and said, oh, I've been using this particular strategy and it's just really great. I've talked about this before. It's just, it's so great. And I do it this way and I do it this way. And the whole time the teacher's like looking behind herself, sorting through materials. And she like plops down, not what I've been doing, but like 25 times better than what I've been doing. And she's like, oh, well, we did this and here's the data for it. And I'm like, okay, I'll be quiet. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Oops, that wasn't very effective. So yeah, but you're, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, that is right on the money for um, the, the way that I preach to do things. So what about, and you've kind of alluded to this for the teachers, right? But what about parents that just feel like they are struggling? Because nine times out of 10, if I'm in that situation where a parent says things maybe aren't working at school um, and and, you know, school doesn't know what to do. And I've tried to have my private people help and I've brought them to meetings and we've had meeting after meeting after meeting, which one solution I'll tell you is an informal meeting. It doesn't have to be an IEP meeting. Like, yeah. let's actually really talk. Um, but what do we say to those parents that are just really struggling and they feel like they're feeling because their child is having trouble at school? Yeah, that's hard. And especially when, and usually those situations are when you feel like you're struggling at home too. Like there's no strategies that we can even share that are working because, you know, we don't have anything that's working at home too. And, you know, a lot of the behaviors in general, just that students in this population are, are working through and then parents are helping them work through are, are hard. And a lot of these behaviors have really long learning histories. Like if we think of a 13 year old, like these are behaviors that have been working for years and years and years. And I think it takes um, a lot of time and patience to really teach new behaviors in a functional way that's long-term based. That's not like a punishment based. Like I'm gonna, you know, like this whole fear based, I'm not gonna do this because I don't wanna get in trouble. Like that's not long lasting behavior change. So. You know, it is, it is hard to find those strategies. And so I think if you're really feeling like you're in a, you know, stuck in a corner on where we go with behavior, you know, my big picture advice is like, get back, get back to the good, 
And what is what does that look like? And I think you can encourage your teachers to do that too. I've, I've been saying this like all year with teachers. I'm like, get get back, like we said this before, get back to baseline. Does that mean taking away some demands? Sure. Does that mean, you know, avoiding things that are hard right now? Sure. Like get back, like where is this kid gonna feel like Dr. Greg Hanley is one of my favorite PCBAs says, we wanna get all our learners to happy, relaxed and calm. If you can be happy, relaxed and calm, you're ready to go. So like, how do we get our kids back to that? Like I tell teachers a lot, be the chocolate chip cookie. Like if I could eat a chocolate chip cookie every day, I would eat a chocolate chip cookie every day. Like make your classroom and yourself a chocolate chip cookie. And I think it's the same at home for parents. Yeah. Like make your house a chocolate chip cookie, make you and your house a place kids wanna be. And if you haven't, if, if we've strayed away from that, that's okay. And, and you're like, well, again, we're like stuck in that. Well, three years ago, I wouldn't have to do that. It's like, well, we're not there. This is where we are now. And so if that means removing demands or reversives or things that are triggering for that child for a while, do that and figure out what's going on and, and fade some of those things back in. And I think, you know, when we try to do learning and teaching new skills, when we're not in a place where we're ready to learn, we're just not going to be successful. And sometimes that's hard for like teachers to hear because they're like associate, you know, school, we learn and I'm not, I'm not teaching then. And, but when you're stuck in like meltdown mode all day, no one's learning anyways. So you may as well get back to a place where everyone feels safe and we're kind of feeling good again, because that's going to give us those opportunities next. I love that. That was the pep talk that I needed. I'm going to go be a chocolate cookie. If no one eats vegetables for a month, everyone will win. It live. It's just fine. You know? It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And you can have one chocolate chip cookie every day and continue to eat vegetables. Yes, you know? yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> I That's the goal. Stay yeah. in candy land, but don't forget to eat your vegetables yes. and you grow <laughs> a little. Oh, that was awesome. Sasha, how do people find you? I'm sure they, my audience is going to want to connect. What, where can they get your information? So we are on really all social media platforms at The Autism Helper. We're pretty active on Instagram and Pinterest and all that good stuff. And our website is theautismhelper.com. On our website is all the information about our courses and membership. And then my podcast is called The Autism Helper Podcast. So pretty easy. So amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Ashley.